Hey there, spooky friends. It's Megan. And before we hop into the episode, I want to tell y'all a little bit about what we've got coming up in person next. We're so excited to announce that our friends at Little Cottage Brewing have invited us back for a monthly spot with trivia. So that means it's time to mark your calendars with a few dates to come hang out with us and play along. On December 13th, join us for Creepy Holiday Trivia, where we'll have questions ranging from spooky holiday traditions around the world, mischievous holiday mythical beings, holiday-themed horror movies, and more. Then, on January 17th, join us again for a deck themed around fears and phobias. Last but not least on the calendar is February 14th for a theme of romance and scorned lovers in horror. We can't wait to see you on December 13th, January 17th, and February 14th for some excellent craft beer and a scary good time. Okay, 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 I get it. Now, on to the episode. Hey there, ghoulies. Happy Pride again, and welcome back to another mini-sode of Clever Ghouls. I'm Megan, and today we're going to be talking about the constant and problematic fetishization of queer women loving women relationships. We're going to be going into some brief history of the fetishization of queer women, the impact this has had on our film industry, and specifically some of the representation of these relationships within the horror genre. As a bisexual woman, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, as few things frustrate me more than having my sexuality dismissed as invalid or just a phase, or to have it overtly sexualized in a perverse manner. This view of us is rampant in our everyday life and wholly perpetuated in our films. And for a quick heads up, I will be using the term sapphic a lot in this episode. And sapphic is an umbrella term that includes lesbian, bisexual, and pansexual, cis women, trans femmes, and non-binary people. The term sapphic derives from the Greek goddess Sappho, who notoriously resided on the Isle of Lesbos. Sappho was an incredibly popular poet whose work explored desire and love, specifically the kind that unfolds between two women. As a result, the women of Lesbos were said to prefer each other hence the origin of the term lesbian. After a few scrolls of Sappho's poems were discovered in the late 1800s, sapphic became an adjective to describe women whose emotional and sexual preferences were other women. It wasn't until the 1950s, though, that sapphic became a popular term to describe women who loved women in the United States. And while many lesbians claim sapphic identity, it is important to note that there is a distinction between being sapphic. While lesbians can absolutely be sapphics, not all sapphics are lesbians. Sapphics can be bisexual, pansexual, omnisexual. It's really just a term to describe women and femmes that love other women or femmes. But back to the topic at hand here, this hypersexual portrayal of sapphic relationships removes the aspect of validity for wanting to pursue meaningful and normal relationships. Boiling sapphic relationships down to being something that is purely sexual delegitimizes them. Society has normalized the view that romantic female relationships are a synonym for the hypersexual fetishization of women loving women. The way we portray sapphism as inherently erotic has socialized an entire culture of people, men especially, to view queer women as entirely for their own sexual gratification. The media has absolutely been a major culprit of socializing these attitudes into society by regurgitating a narrative of sapphism which is unrealistic and unrepresentative. What's become the normative idea of queer women is just one that's been constructed to be attractive to men. The majority of depictions of queer women solely feature 
cisgender, feminine, white women. We see it in films, music, and pop culture as a whole. This idea that femininity is exclusively intertwined with sexuality. This blatantly disregards that we come in all shapes, colors, identities, sizes, and it teaches girls growing up queer that unless they're hypersexual and fit a certain stereotype, their place in society is inconsequential. And value is placed on them based on how desirable they are to other people outside of those relationships. But when, and more importantly why, did this fetishization start? This has obviously gone on for as long as sapphic relationships have been around, so forever. But it really became a public-facing issue circa 1969. On June 28th of 1969, the New York City Police Department raided a gay club called the Stonewall Inn. The raid sparked a riot among bar patrons and neighborhood residents as police brutality beat and hauled employees and patrons out of the bar, leading to six days of protest and violent clashes with law enforcement outside the bar on Christopher Street, in the neighboring streets, and in nearby Christopher Park. The Stonewall Riot served as a catalyst for the gay rights movement in the United States and all around the world. And while the Stonewall Inn incident and riots were not what kickstarted the demand for LGBTQ rights and equality, it did serve a critical role in showcasing the discriminatory actions taken against queer people and the lack of rights and humanity that they were given because of their identity. Since then, the queer community has grown visibly, and we now allow same-sex couples to marry legally nationwide as of June 2015. So since then, the public view and representation of sapphics has grown exponentially. Unfortunately, though, it has not necessarily grown in acceptance at the same rate. Sapphics are often treated like objects more than people, convincing homophobes that they somehow have the right to judge, harass, assault, or even sexually assault them. This mentality roots from the idea that sapphics solely exist to satisfy male consumption. In the mainstream media, the vast majority of sapphic relationships showcase sapphics as hypersexual people whose lives exist only in the bedroom, demonstrating a relationship that lacks a romantic and emotional side to it and shaping the relationship to cater to male audiences specifically, and that is absolutely well reflected in our media. Horror and the queer community have a tumultuous relationship, and if you haven't listened to my mini-sode from earlier in this month called Queer Love Sphere, definitely go check that out for more information. But horror and queerness have gone hand in hand since its origins from the notion of otherness and queer monsters and things like our 1922 version of Nosferatu to the era of lesbian vampires, which we will talk about more shortly, and the 1936 Dracula's Daughter to our more contemporary and intersectional representations in the modern horror film. But so often, queer-coded characters are presented as villains whose queerness is part of the reason that they're frightening, or they're the first to die, acting as an example for the rest of the characters. Sapphic characters, however, in particular, are usually fetishized or demonized in movies like High Tension from 2003 or The Hunger from all the way back in 1983. And one of our biggest examples of simultaneously demonizing and fetishizing sapphics in horror films is through this lesbian vampire trope. We get a deep dive into this trope in Hillier's film Dracula's Daughter from 1936 with how the Countess pines to be normal and to stop her desire to feed on other women. Lesbian subtext is abundant in this movie, but it's coded under the guise of the Countess being portrayed as a predatory monster that needs to be fixed somehow. 
because queerness is so often synonymous with predatory in so many horror films, while also playing up the hypersexualization of these characters, essentially turning it into almost pornography at the same time. And we see this obsession with the sapphic vampire and the explicit fetishization of them through the numerous adaptations of the 1872 novel Carmilla. From Hammer Films' The Vampire Lovers in 1970 to the web series Carmilla in 2014, the obsession with the sapphic vampire has persisted on. But what the 2014 adaptation has done that no other adaptation has is to make the sapphic vampire for a queer audience rather than for the heterosexual male spectator that they've typically been made for. Films like The Vampire Lovers or Lust for a Vampire sexualize the vampiric monster by dressing her in scantily clad attire while necking other young girls in order to sexually titillate the male voyeur in the theater. But with the Stonewall riots and the end of the Hayes production code, queer people became front and center more than ever in our films. The exploitation of queer women in horror films and in Hollywood in general has only begun to dwindle in recent years. The reason this minisode came into fruition, though, was based on discussions that we had during our full episode on Black Swan. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, go jete on over to that now, as I, a queer ballerina, had a lot to say about a movie about a queer ballerina. And in particular, how problematic and exhausting the fetishization of the scene in this movie was. The sex scene between Nina and Lily is a bit confounding. On the one hand, it's really easy to view the scene as fetishization and exploitative, but on the other hand, it provides a fascinating look into Nina's psyche, albeit a bit underdeveloped though, which leads me to lean further into it feeling exploitative to me. Nina's transformation into the Black Swan serves frequently as a metaphor for her repressed and finally blossoming sexuality. Thomas asks Nina at one point if she's a virgin. He then asks her to go home and masturbate because sex is the only way she's going to loosen up and get this role according to him. But it isn't until she's alone with Lily that she's able to let go and give in to her impulses. Sure, she's got a bunch of MDMA in her system, but she's also very clearly into everything that Lily is doing. Does this mean that Nina is repressing some lesbianism or bisexuality? The sequence definitely implies that, but the film never digs deeper into that aspect of Nina's identity, so we're left with the question unanswered. Unfortunately, though, if you look at this film as Nina descending into madness because of some repressed queerness that she may have, it really leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And I talk about this a lot in that Black Swan episode because narratively, the scene does make sense based on the story that's being told here. But I, as always, don't love stories of sapphism being told through the cishet male eyes, especially when it's a story of descent into madness. However, the scene and who told it are not really the most problematic part here. It was the public reception of it. I constantly heard people, men specifically, say, yeah, the movie wasn't great and I didn't get it, but that scene was hot, right? And when I, as a queer ballerina, expressed my disdain over people's reactions, I was frequently met with, but isn't representation important? And it is, but this isn't it. Being fetishized is not the same thing as being accepted. Having your identity and relationships judged by what is deemed sexually appealing to those outside of your relationship is not a celebration of queerness. The fetishization of same-sex attraction affects the lived, everyday experiences of queer women. It makes us stop and look around before we kiss our partners goodbye in public. It makes our hands fall to our sides when a man passes by us on a street. And worst of all, it gives men the confidence to loudly proposition us for things like three 
threesomes in a threatening, sneering manner. In our very first minisode that I did on bisexuality and its representation in horror, I talk ad nauseum about how my identity has affected my relationships, in particular how it's been fetishized by my male partners in the past. I've been having silly conversations about things like celebrity crushes with exes before, and when I'd mention a woman's celebrity, I would be met with, ooh, could I watch? Or men would tell me, it's totally not cheating if you go make out with a woman, especially if I can join or watch. But it would be cheating, because my identity is real, valid, and not your porn fodder. This was a conversation that I had very early on with my current partner because I just could not enter into another relationship with someone who either demonized or dismissed my current identity or someone who would constantly crack jokes about or sexualize my past relationships in some way. During this conversation, he responded in a way that validated and reassured me. He understood and accepted who I was. He never once made a joke about watching me make out with other women or asking for a threesome with another woman. And when I brought up that aforementioned scenario as an example, he reminded me that it would be cheating because I was in a committed relationship with him. And that response is unfortunately so refreshing and so rare. Because sapphics are constantly dismissed as attention-seeking, homewreckers, confused, invalid, or were just entirely fetishized or hypersexualized in our day-to-day lives and in our movies. We aren't viewed in relation to our value of ourselves. We are viewed in relation to our value for the sexual gratification of outside people. Ultimately, the complexities of women's bodies, relationships, and intimacies are lost when they're seen solely in sexual terms. It does not matter if they're being constructed as attractive or repulsive, because either way, they're still only being understood within the framework of Hollywood, men, and their preferences. And I could go on about this topic for days and days, but I'll stop it here. I'll link some resources for you in the show notes. And if you want more information on queer representation in our films, go back and check out some of the other content that I've mentioned. If you like this episode, please turn on those auto downloads on your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode and go like, review, share, and all of that fun stuff. I hope you have the happiest and safest of prides. Stay creepy, friends. The Clever Ghouls podcast is run by Megan, Marissa, Blair, and Melissa. This episode was done by Megan. Our intro and outro music was created for us by Josh Marshall. Find his links on our show notes. For more episodes and other spooky content, find us on your favorite social media platform through our handle at Clever Ghouls. Don't forget to subscribe and share, and if you really like our content, please leave us a review.